I feel some light at the end of the tunnel with this whole thing, you know, as I think a lot of people are feeling. But, uh, you know, I wrote a lot of songs during the quarantine. I, I, being a songwriter for me is kind of great because whatever's going on is just useful. As a, as a writer, generally, just to throw whatever curveballs have been thrown in your way, you know, everything's, everything's material. I talk to a lot of musicians especially i find that oftentimes they feel like they need to have a certain amount of distance between themselves and the source material in order to really i, I guess sufficiently analyze it or, or tackle it but you feel like you're able to get sort of a more immediate sense of catharsis through songwriting in two parts to that like i sometimes feel like writing from my confusion is a fine place to begin i don't know what what, what i feel about something which is actually a great you know reason to write a song because i feel like it's, I, I feel that way about kind of nonfiction too. Like I, I, I mostly just start off with big questions. And as I write, I kind of figure out what I'm feeling about it. So I don't know that I require that much distance, although it can certainly help. I mean, some, so I think, I think songs are written from a number of different levels. One is I'm, I'm like a, a, a wise expert, right? Looking back and I've resolved these questions and I'm kind of this wise older person. Another way is I'm in the middle of something. I'm the protagonist in a drama and I don't know exactly what's going on or I'm confused. You know, I play with both of those things narratively in my songwriting. You touched on it a little bit, but I, but I guess it's sort of using writing generally, but songwriting specifically as a way to process things essentially in real time for me music sometimes is doing things to me emotionally that i that i can't intellectualize or verbalize and i don't know songwriting has just become you know I've, I, I wrote and directed two movies and and from you know from this original idea to the final product is like two years or you know if you're lucky so there's something about just so great about spending an afternoon writing or co-writing and then having something real substantial really substantial to show for it at the end of the afternoon is like we made this you know and it's like it could be produced and stuff but it's close to its final form so that's really exciting for me that the speed that's collapsed you know the 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 cutting out the time between idea and execution if you're having a good songwriting day is really a thrill to me. I mean, in terms of writing and directing, you know, even if you are the writer and director on a project, when it comes to, to film and TV specifically, there's just so many cooks, right? And there, and there's so many moving parts and so many different factors that like, I assume that even if you have a certain amount of control that the end products just regardless ends up being really different than it was in in terms of how you pictured it in your head. Yeah, I mean that's the the assumption being though that you always know best, which is not certainly true. I mean, when I when I directed, my DP knew a lot more about cinematography than I did. My my production designer knew a lot more about production design. So, in some ways that collaboration can really help help you, especially if you're the you know, if it's your story. Also working with, you know, as an actor, putting your trust in people that have a lot more, you know, like I'm on this show Hunters on Amazon. And, um, you know, this guy, David Wilde, who created it, he has a vision for the show that's like, it's not my vision, but I'm so happy to be a part of his world because it's so unique and singular. And it's um, so, you know, but there can also be a downside. You know, you don't you, you're not in the editing room. You're not telling them what takes to choose. You're not there's a certain amount of uh, healthy detachment you have to train yourself to have. But at the same time, you can it can take you to places that you wouldn't on your own go. Do you feel that when you were really starting to do the music thing in earnest and, and you were working with Ben specifically, that he served a similar role to, uh, you know, those kind of more established people that you were working with in terms of the film? Yeah, you know, it was weird because he, ha he, he had a 25-year jump on me in terms of songwriting. But at the same time, I've been writing for so long and I have such a strong sense of what I want to say 
as a writer and I, and I, and I always had an intuitive grasp of rhythm and rhyme and, and there were certain things that just really allowed me to jump in, you know, midstream as a songwriter and working with this, uh, this guy who, who is such a, you know, he's such a native talent. He's such, and he has so many years of experience. So on some level, it was like this great songwriting workshop. Like I just got to, I just got to write songs with a really great songwriter and learn how to do it myself. And at the same time, he, he had a weird thing where he really wanted to, he deferred to me a lot. You know, he would, he was practicing not being the alpha in the songwriting uh, duo. So I ended up singing lead on most of the songs. He let me kind of be the, uh, more of the generator of ideas or content. I mean, we would haggle it out, you know, like one of the things we really like about the songs we write together and, I think Keith Richards says he, he, he likes songs written by two people better than songs written by one person. The, what I'd say about, uh, you know, two people writing a song is by the time it reaches another person's ears, two people have had to agree on it. It's like, it's like sending something through legislation to a Senate. You know, it's been deliberated upon. So, you know, you ding certain ideas that you don't like the other person or your own gets shot down in a really healthy way if it's a, if it's a good, healthy partnership. And Ben and I, for whatever reason, we tried not to analyze it too much. We just... Every time we sit down, we come up with something that we like, you know, and, and I've done a lot of co-writing. Most of it's been quite fruitful, you know, like I really like the people I've collaborated with. I had one, one or two that's just been less successful, but mostly I really like running ideas through at least two people. If you're dealing with somebody else who's creative, they've got their their own voice. Yeah. What's your sense of like how you actually do something that is truly collaborative and that is kind of a, in a sense, a compromise between two unique voices. Well, it kind of feels like, you know, they talk about like relationships. It's like you have the two people and then you have this third thing, right? This third relation, this third thing called the relationship or the piece of art. And it feels to me like what gets the thing done is when you both are tending to the same fire, right? Like when there's something that you're both equally excited about and each contribution is making it better. My friend Josh Shank wrote a really interesting book uh, called The Powers of Two. I don't know if you've heard of it. But it might be a cool book for you to read, but it's all about how certain people's genius is unlocked in partnership, that on their own they were, um, you know, Lennon and McCartney being the kind of obvious example. He does go back to them quite a bit, but there's a whole host of people throughout history that in partnership is where they're, where they really took off, you know, whether it's in science or art or whatever. So, you know, since I come from the theater, I've mostly, the majority of the art I've worked on has been collaborative and I really like it. I, 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 you know, one of the things about being in LA that always struck me, especially when I got out first, I was like, Oh, like, are we just supposed to be looking out? Like, I thought we were all in like a theater troupe, you know, I had to learn that not everyone kind of has that mentality, but I, but I do think that the most joy I've had artistically have been like deep, deep, deep collaboration where everyone's making, everyone's helping everyone get better. It's funny that you phrased Ben's approach as being a, a weird thing. I mean, do you, do you feel like generally when it comes to songwriting that that is not the approach that most people take? I just think Ben had been through, you know, he went through his kind of like, what's that phrase? Like enfant terrible or whatever. Like he was kind of this boy like bratty teenager who would just say anything and then he was like deep into these different kinds of spiritual groups like I just think he's had a lot of chapters in his life and for whatever reason I met I, I, I mean we'd been friends for a long time before we started writing together but we kind of met artistically at a time where he was you know he was a father and he I just think he had slowed down and he was more interested in like Let's let, let, like our partnership was so unexpected and strange and it kind of caught fire in certain quarters where 
he was like, well, he's kind of a guy who just follows the, 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 where, where it's, where the heat goes, you know, like, so I think he was, I think he was just interested in what, what can I do to serve this duo and how, how best to, I just think he had lost his desire to be the, at the center of everything. And he was kind of experimenting with supporting a different vision that was not singularly his, um, he might say something different about that, but I think that's what he felt. Uh, he was really strong. He was really clear with me and he reminded me like, I want, I want to support your vision here, you know? And I think on the, that was more of the first record. The second record, we were really more of a duo and we were, we were, um, you know, knocking things out. The second record we were, he, he was, um, we were much more kind of in the trenches together, like really, really trying to figure out the best way to write these songs and, and his fingerprints are all over that record the same way mine are so the effect of it which was really heartening was he he let me know that I had melodies coursing through like I knew that I knew I could write lyrics I didn't know I had all these melodies coursing through me and he really empowered me and and uh and and let me know that I could do this you know I, I certainly wouldn't be writing songs or releasing music on my own had it not been for this many years long collaboration with Ben. It sounds like you had a certain sense of confidence in your ability as a songwriter and your creative ability. But was there an initial hang up early on of being this this actor who's pursuing music? Obviously, like it's something that we've seen a lot over the years. Were you afraid of some of the, the perception of having already th- this established career and moving into a d- different creative territory? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I still battle it, to be honest. I mean, I, you know, some people do it less successfully than others, let's say. I, yeah, it is something I still battle. But but my my hunger to challenge myself and freak myself out a little bit artistically is stronger than my egoic self-preservation, you know, like, like I failed quite publicly and I I've been through the ringer. Like I don't, I'm much more interested in getting to something that inspires me and makes me feel, you know, like, I, like I'm excited to get out of bed in the morning and get to work on, on it. Music has always been just the thing that lights me up more than any other thing. And, um, you definitely have to battle some imposter syndrome and, you know, I did it. I did it. I, I think part of the reason I clung so tightly to Ben was because he would, you know, whether you're a fan of his or not, like he's a first rate musician and he's a first rate songwriter and he's had a really long career. And I think I, in my early days, because really at Ratter and Lee was the only thing I was doing. I huddled very close to him. You know, I, I wanted, I felt like he did lend me some legitimacy as a musician because he's a great musician and he was choosing to, to, to form this partnership with me and venturing out kind of under that Radnor and Lee umbrella and putting out my own stuff has certainly been a little scary, but at the same time, I believe in the songs, people respond to the songs. I was really, um, I, uh, both my films that I directed premiered at Sundance and the filmmakers, you do this filmmaker brunch that, that Robert Redford hosts and, and when, when Liberal Arts, my second film was there, he, he said something that really impacted me. He talked about when you get to the kind of top of one area, you, 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 you can't just sit there and stay there. Like you ha- he called it uh, starting from zero, right? Where he had never directed a film before, but he was a, the biggest movie star in the world. So he directed Ordinary People, which won the Oscar. So this guy's very good at starting from zero, but but he was terrified. He had never started a a, a film festival, and he started Sundance. So the, so he's clearly batting a thousand. But the but the the notion of freaking yourself out and becoming a novice when you're already so 
successful in one area. It felt to me like a way to stay creatively alert. You know, I, I do like beginnings. I do like learning new things. I mean, I, I don't like being bad at things. So you have to journey through that territory of like, oh, I'm not, I'm, you know, I thought I was a, I was actually for a long time, I was a better songwriter than I was a guitar player. So I had to let guitar playing catch up to my songwriting. And it's still on some level catching up. I feel like, you, you you know, to get to anywhere great, you really have to risk humiliation and failure. And, um, and I've gotten decent at that. I mean, I still can spend some sleepless nights, you know, wondering like, who, who do I think I am? But it's more fun to just push through that and make something. The difference between where you're starting out and where most people are starting out when, when they're doing music is you're starting from scratch creatively, but it's in a public way. Regardless of what you do, the moment you put something out there, people are already seeing it. Most people get that opportunity to kind of really to ramp up to that. Right, right. But I, yeah, and, and I also, there's always a little bit of heartbreak, like, I know this from from movies I've directed or even TV shows I've been on where it's a really, really sweet collaborative experience and it's just yours. It just belongs to you and the cast and the creative team. And then you start seeing publicity come out for it and trailers get released and, and people start weighing in, whether they like it, don't like it, you know, and then ratings come in or box office and all this stuff. And there's always a little bit of sadness at letting something go out of that inner circle kind of creative experience into the public, into the marketplace, right? And then, you know, I try to, the only thing I can control is that initial creative thing. And, you know, I can do publicity and I can, I can contribute and hopefully get the word out. But a lot of that stuff is, is beyond my control. And some things I've done, I've really believed in and they've caught fire and other things I've done that I really believed in didn't. And that's not really up to me. I mean, I, I think like I just try to keep going and making things, but I do, I do honor the fact that there is, there's always this sadness at, it's almost like dropping your kid off the first day of school or something. You're like, Oh, they might get bullied. They might have no one to play with. Like you kind of just have to trust that you've taught them some things and they're going to be okay. But it's, it's vulnerable. Making things and putting it out there is very vulnerable. You mentioned imposter syndrome. And obviously, I feel like for whatever reason, it's kind of in the zeitgeist. It's just like something people have been talking a lot about over the past several years. Is that just something that you connect to your music? Or is that something that's kind of been pervasive in, in, in acting? And is it something that even if you do hit some of these heights that just kind of sticks around? I think that the feeling that you might be a fraud is a not in, it's not an unuseful feeling. A really good friend of mine is a novelist and he said he said the only people I know who don't have that feeling are 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 like he considers them kind of hacky. You know that they have boundless confidence but they're not. And a lot of artists who who really sustain a career and and keep challenging themselves like it's kind of a job requirement that you freak yourself out and that you you think you're you're blowing it this time, you know. What my friend says, and I, I believe this for myself too, is that he labors part of the labor is to disprove the 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 feeling in his head that he's a fraud. Like he's trying to he's trying to work against that and triumph over it on some level or or wrestle it down or you know, that that his work it it, it it's uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable to live with those feelings, but you you continue, you know, any great novelist says when they're starting a new novel, it's like they, they have to teach themselves how to write again. Like they're, that, that is not, um, the difference I would say like with acting, I can still get insecure around it, but, but I, I celebrated 20 years of being a professional actor of just having that be my job. And 
there's something about that marker really did something to me where I said, you know, statistically not um, all that probable to, to be able to do that for 20 years. So I must have some skill in this area that's allowed me to have this career. And that doesn't mean that I have boundless confidence as an actor, you know, it just means that you have to look at the evidence and say, well, people are responding and, and I do get hired, you know, and I do get jobs and I, and I still enjoy it sometimes, <laughs> not all the time, but sometimes. So, um, you know, I, I, I think some, I think it's really like this weird balancing act between, okay, I know what I'm doing. I'm confident I can walk into a room, I can do this. And at the same time saying like, you know, really holding up the possibility, I might not, I, I might not know what I'm doing. All of that I think is, is kind of the Zen, you know, trick you have to do in your head of, of just sustaining a career. It takes something like a milestone, like the 20 year mark for you to, to really appreciate that. I mean, you know, it does just being on like being on a big network TV show and being surrounded by these famous talented actors, is that not vindication in and of itself? I never, I never felt, I, I, you know, when I was on How I Met Your Mother, I had to do, I had to do all these other things because, you know, being on a hit show is so, you know, it feels like as a musician, like you just have this one huge hit song and you're like, why that song? Like, why that song? I don't know why that one. I don't even think it's my best song, you know? I've gotten more confidence post How I Met Your Mother because I've, the roles I've taken have been really kind of strange and interesting and unexpected. And they, they haven't been, you know, nine years, 208 episode kind of situations, but they've been really challenging to me and really fulfilling. But I don't, I don't think if you talk to people who are wildly visibly successful, I don't think that visible success gives you confidence. And in fact, the, the, the visible success can be the very thing that rattles you and takes away your confidence. If that makes sense. I mean, if, if it brought if it brought uh, limitless happiness to people, there'd be no depression and drug use and suicide attempts among famous people, and that's certainly not the case. So I've really, you know, as it can, it really was vertigo inducing to to have a show that was that big a hit, but at the same time, it taught me how to stabilize myself and how to lean into things that made me feel just more solid. This is something that I've tried to deal with in my own life, which is, you know, I pales in comparison again to you know having this uh, to being on a television show but it is appreciating when somebody tells you that they like something that you've done even if it's not your favorite my immediate impulse is like oh i've done so many better things since then but like yeah. at a certain point you have to appreciate that somebody has appreciated what you've done yeah i think that i think taking a compliment is kind of an art and i learned you know from from other people like when when you make a when you compliment someone, you're genuinely moved by something someone does, and they kind of swat it away. It's actually an unpleasant experience for you. And essentially, what they're saying is you have bad taste. <laughs> like like you don't like the good stuff. You like my crap, or you like. And I just think that there's something so ungracious about that. Like like I you know people continue to watch How I Met Your Mother and be really affected by it after all of these years. It's not the thing, if you were saying like, what should you watch of me as an actor? I wouldn't, that's not where I'd leave you. And yet I'm never going to, I don't know that I'm ever going to have something that, that goes out globally like that show. I hope I have, it would be fun to have one more. (laughs) I don't want to sneeze at the fact that people have been really inspired by it, that people get tattoos of blue French horns and yellow umbrellas and 
have their weddings be a theme of that. You know, like, you know, I remember I had shows that really moved me when I was younger and they, they affected who I was as a person. And that show does that for people. What I feel about that show, or what my experience on that show, I almost have to remove that and just say, wow, I was a part of something that was really meaningful for people. And not a lot of people get to experience that. And I don't, it's not something I want to dismiss. The hit song metaphor is is a really interesting one. There are two ways to deal with that. You have a hit song, a lot of people spend the rest of their career chasing that song. And some people just go in the opposite direction. And it, it sounds like, you know, you've made a point to do the latter. Well, I've struggled with it because, uh, you know, it was actually, that was actually Ben's metaphor for How I Met Your Mother. He said, it's like you had a huge hit song as a musician and everywhere you go, every show you play, they're going to call out for that song. And he said, the, the, the cool thing is they'll listen to your new music. You just got to play that song eventually. And he really, you know, we went to Australia and he joyfully plays Catch My Disease and Cigarettes Will Kill You. And everyone sings, you know, like he, he's not, uh, he doesn't sneeze at those things. So I think I've, I've, I've reached a, a kind of truce with it, you know, where I, I, uh, you know, I prefer that people call me by my actual name rather than a TV character's name. And, and I, and I cringe a little bit still when I see online, like people say a quote that my character said and attribute it to me. And it's like, I did not say that. <laughs> like that is, I didn't even write that, you know, but at the same time, I, I must've, I must've participated in, in a, in a pretty big way in that show being what it was, you know, like all of us were you know, the co-creators on some level, even though we didn't, you know, the cast, we didn't write it, but we were, we were there and we, we brought it to life. So, but, but, but I, it's, I, you know, I'm coming again, going back to the songwriting thing of like playing the wise old expert, like I'm coming at this after many years of wrestling with this. So today I feel pretty calm about it. <laughs> Not always. How much does a math change on a, a solo project versus something you're you're doing with band. A conversation I have with bands a lot is that the great thing about being in a band is that you know you share the su- successes, but also you share the blame, right? You've got these like other people you can kind of commiserate if something doesn't go the way you want it to. But if it's just you, and if it's just your name that's out there, all the successes and all the failures they're on you. Yeah, I don't. I think that I really try, and maybe this is just psychological preservation, but I try not to look at my latest thing as being a referendum on how great I am as an artist and how worthy I am as a person on the earth. And I think when we, when we put something out and we're like, my self-esteem rises and falls upon the reception of this thing, no amount of praise is ever going to be enough. And any hint of criticism is going to kill you. So I've really had to moderate my understanding of like, what it means to put something out there. Like I know that the artists I respect have a body of work. Like I've been reading a lot of, I, I used to read a lot of Philip Roth in my twenties uh, and in college. And there's this big, huge biography out about him. And, you know, and I look at all the books he did that just, you know, there's 20 some, 30 some book, maybe more, but like just looking at all those books and some of them were huge critical hits. Some of them were commercial successes. Some of them were failures. Some of them were dismissed. But there's something more interesting to me about the fact that he just kept writing books. So, you know, I put out this EP and hopefully, you know, I have plenty of songs I'd love to get in the studio and do a full length record. But I'm not looking at that as this is the final word on me as a musician or this is the final word on me as an artist. I think it's more like I keep putting things out and they're reflective of like what I've been going through, what I've been wrestling with. And, And the people that, you know, respond to what I do 
and care about what I do beyond, you know, being a guy who was on a big television show. Like, I think they're in, I think they're interested enough and loyal enough. You know, they, there's that thing of like, you just need a thousand fans, right? Like true fans who will, who will buy the records and buy merch and sh- show up and support you and spread the word. And that's really nice. Like, like, like it's a, it's a little strange. Like I've always responded to indie artists and, and more cult figures and DIY kind of artists. But then I was on this really big show that was, you know, 20th Century Fox and CBS. So I always felt like a tourist in that world. And then, but then, you know, you put out a record that is, you know, has a modest kind of reach and, and people would think, well, it's not Billie Eilish sales. And it's like, it was never intended to be, you know, like my films were, you know, Sundance movies that had really modest releases. And I look, I would love everything I make to take over the world, but I'm also, I don't know that that's what I have my eyes on. Like, I just want to make things that I really care about and resonate with other people. And again, I'm giving you a very psychologically healthy reading of this stuff. And that doesn't mean I don't lose sleep over it or want everyone to praise me endlessly <laughs> and buy everything I do. But that's just not, you know, sometimes that happens and a lot of times it doesn't. And I just want to stay creative and productive in the midst of, of the highs and lows, you know? A couple weeks ago, I spoke with Craig Finn of The Hold Steady, yeah. you know, who's a songwriter. I it's tremendously respect him. And he actually, I think he quoted uh, Joan Didion at me of this idea. You alluded to this a little bit earlier, but this idea of sort of not really, not really knowing what you're writing until you've actually written it or, or until you're, you're in it. And, and essentially what he told me is um, that all of their albums have had themes. He never really figured out broadly or abstractly what he was writing about until he had a few songs under his belt. Do you get a sense that it takes a couple of songs and it takes a, an album to sort of really figure out broadly what you're dealing with through music? Yeah. I mean, weirdly, I think I'm dealing in music with a lot of the themes I explore in other areas in music and plays I write in, um, I mean, in movies and plays, um, in, in like nonfiction kind of essay form, which I do. So I think, I think at my age, I kind of have some areas of, of concern or like things that I'm interested in, you know, I'm really interested in aging, like, like time. That's something that I, I, I was talking with a friend yesterday. Like I, I, I think I find aging fascinating because it's just non-negotiable. Like it's just this requirement of being alive on the earth that your body is going to change and it's not going to be around forever. And how do you do that without losing your mind? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you live in the face of that, you know, decay and deterioration and, and also, you know, how much wisdom you gather as you go and, and, and how many insecurities you can shed as you go, you know, it's like this weird, this weird bargain where you, where you, it's like addition and subtraction going all at the same time. So, you know, that's just one area of my concern as a, as a writer, songwriter and otherwise. I think, I think Ben and I, it was interesting. Our first record, we were, we were involved in this spiritual group and we were, you know, drinking a lot of ayahuasca and we were, we were like really um, kind of much more in a kind of spiritual metaphysical headspace when we were at that first record. And yeah. then we left that group. We got much more interested in like, the human experience, right? Like the, the, I have an earth, I'm on earth. I have a body. I'm going to die. I have sex. I hurt people. I get hurt. It was a much more human record. I think our second album, and we have a song called the animal, which is about, you know, this reconciliation of like 
what do I do about the animal part of me, the shadow, the Jungian kind of shadowy parts of me? Down in the Dirt is one of my favorite songs on the second record. You know, just just like, what do we do about the, the kind of material situation that we're in? That we have bodies, we have urges, we have, you know, and not all of them are are divine so or 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 you know moral or whatever however you want to phrase it and um so that was a shift for our second record and the stuff i'm writing on my own you know i don't know it's just like if i get a i i i write better with questions than answers like like i don't i i don't want to be one of the things that i really pulled away from like any teacher that claimed to have answers for everything you know there's that great might be vaclav havel or something that quote of stick with those who are looking for the truth and run from those who claim to have found it so i never want to be a didactic kind of prescriptive writer where i say this is what this is and you need to follow it like i'm so much more i'm so much more drawn to humility in people's writing and people who are really kind of howling at the at the moon and asking big, big, big questions. Cloud Cult is one of my favorite bands. I don't know if you know them from. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I made a movie with them a couple of years ago. I just, you know, Craig Minowa, the lead singer. Like, I just think he's just a magical writer because he's just all about the mystery, you know. And, and he and his wife lost a child, like lost a baby years ago, and like he he just deals with the biggest themes of grief and loss and transcendence and uh, healing, like these are things that are so beyond even science can't kind of quantify these things. So I, I, I just, I, I want my writing to live more in that space than in the space of like, I've got something figured out, you know? And I don't think the disconnect between taking ayahuasca and asking these big questions, I don't think there's a disconnect at all. Right. I mean, like ostensibly ayahuasca is, it's supposed to be one of the sort of more internalizing drugs. Right. It's something that people take as an opportunity to really almost have a uh, an outward looking in experience that I think you don't really get generally in life. It is introspective. What, what do you feel like, if at all, if there is kind of a, a disconnect between that sort of soul searching and the kind that you're doing now? You know, I still work with, you know, ayahuasca and other medicines. Like I, I, I really get a lot from them and they certainly, the danger of those kind of things that you float off into the atmosphere and don't quite come back. And by, I don't mean in any kind of mental break. I think you can live in a way that there's just a kind of detachment that, that I don't particularly appreciate, you know, like I want to stay in the space of like, wow, it's really hard to be alive and there's disease and there's gun violence and there's a lot of people are hurting and economic disparity is a real thing. Like I think sometimes you can, you can get so spiritual and groovy that you kind of think you, you, you forget that you got to be active in the world and you got to be engaged and, and you got to fight injustice and all these things. Uh, yeah. I, just, I try to use those in a way that I, I try to listen for what the, the actual real world homework is. You know, I took a long time. I took a couple years off where I which I had done so much of it that I thought, you know what, I'm just getting the same messages over and over. I think it's a, a time for integration, but I, I value, I value the, the gifts that psychedelics give very deeply. And, there's a lot. There's a lot of psychedelic kind of uh, knowledge and questioning and Radner and Lee stuff. Uh, if you listen closely, you touch on a, a good point, and it's something that I've been thinking a lot lately, both, both in terms of psychedelics and technology generally. And I, I think I think Timothy Leary is probably the through line here. But I, I think I think a lot of that messaging kind of generally did it did us a disservice when they were telling us that if everybody takes LSD, 
it's going to create world peace. Like, I, I don't think that's a particularly useful conversation. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, did you read Michael Pollan's book? It's worth reading. The, the stuff on the history of psychedelics and psychedelic research is really, really fascinating. But I agree. I mean, I, I think there's something, you know, I first took ayahuasca in Brazil in 2007. After my first ceremony, I did six ceremonies down there and then went to Colombia a couple months later and did three more. And but my first, my overriding impulse when I the, after I took it was like every world leader has to get together and do this. And I think that's kind of a rookie mistake because it's just this idea that like you've had this big startling experience and you your heart is you know you've tasted some ego dissolution and your your heart feels like it's blown been blown open. And the last thing you want to do is wage war, right? And you're like, well, this is clearly the solution. But you know, people who are not ready or or willing or or open to those experiences they can be driven to absolute madness by them if they're if they don't you know if they don't if they don't have some sort of container for how to return you know um it's it's not safe for everyone and in fact i i i have a thing where i get really i have a pet peeve around people who take do one experience and write about it very authoritatively because I know the more I did it, the more mysterious it got and the less certain I was about things. And I think that that's just a more interesting space to do it from. I grew up Jewish and I was I, I got bar mitzvahed and, and went through all of that. I'm not a religious person, but it is something that I sort of, I consider it like at very least part of my ethnic cultural identity. You know, it, it is interesting to see how many of these sort of like early American, I guess, white Buddhists sort of came out of that. How much overlap there is between sort of uh, Judaism and kind of American brace, uh, embrace of Eastern mysticism. I'm wondering like if, if having grown up in that tradition, if that's something that continues to sort of inform any of these experiences for you. Yeah, I think so. You know, <clears throat> I went, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I went to an Orthodox Hebrew day school. So it was like half day English, half day Hebrew. And my youth, you know, my, my grade school years were really saturated in like Torah study and like, you know, these tales of, of the, you know, the ancestors. And so that's always, uh, inspired me, haunted me. I definitely, I, I definitely feel like being Jewish is, is like inextricably bound up with my, my love of story, you know, cause it, cause it's like Jewish people like literally like, like venerate a book, you know, and, and if they drop it on the ground, they kiss it. I, I think that sometimes, uh, and I think I, I see that there's an effort in some ways to remedy this where, especially in conservative and reform Judaism, that, that, that there seems to be a, a push to restore more mystery or spirituality to it so that people don't have to go looking in other traditions. But, um, you know, I was friendly with Ram Dass in the last couple of years of his life. And, you know, he's a very famous uh, Jewish uh, turned Hindu kind of a guy and um and he and he reconnected with Judaism in in some ways uh, in his later years and but you know Krishna Das like all those guys and who who sat with Neem Karoli Baba and certainly many many you know Jewish Buddhists I think that there's there's something I mean I think there's something in all of us but in and I don't think it's particular to the Jewish soul but we're all yearning for transcendence or to to bow to something much bigger and wiser and more benevolent than ourselves. And and I do think some of the Eastern religions um, speak to that a little more directly and calmly than, 
maybe the, the Old Testament God is, um, you know, it can be a little baffling for people, but closing your eyes and um, turning inward, it, you know, and, and again, I don't want to discount the fact that there is a long history of Jewish meditation practice, which, you know, is maybe re- resurfacing. I, yeah, I think, I think I'm always, I, I, I do in some ways consider myself a Jewish artist in that that's another thing of, of where questioning is, is, is kind of paramount. The idea of coming back to it, you know, to kind of towards the end of your life, or at least when you get older, is an interesting one. It's something that I think a lot about. And I'm wondering just generally like what it is. Maybe that's sort of the experience just across the board with religions where, you know, and you, you discuss a, a little bit as it, as it pertains to sort of the inevitability of, of aging, but it's just sort of, I guess you sort of go back to what you know to see if like there are some answers that you can find in there. Yeah, it might be, you know, to mix religions, but it might be a little bit of the prodigal son. You know, you go out and you, you, you look at, you taste everything else. You know, there, there's a, there's a, and I, and I think this is probably archetypal and, and, and relatively healthy that you reject what your parents gave you and you, and you, there's a kind of natural rebelliousness. And then maybe when you're older or starting a family or, or, or even much older, there's this kind of return home. And it, this is this is like an archetypal, you know, kind of Joseph Campbell thing that you you go into the dark wood and you face the fears and you get transformed and you come home with new information. And And looking at Judaism, I certainly have reexamined what it means to me because I, I, I went through a period where I, I really didn't care about it. And then and then as I started to get interested in more spirituality, I found that there was so much wisdom in my own tradition that was really useful. You know, I, I consider myself like a very, I have a very omnivorous spiritual appetite. Like I feel like if it's true, I don't care where it comes from, if it's useful, you know. Is TM still part of your daily life? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there was a there was a moment in the deep in quarantine where I was really back on the two a day schedule and uh, I've fallen off a little bit. I still, I still get it in, you know, but not, not always the twice a day. And, and it's more of a maintenance kind of, it's like going to the gym a little bit. Like it's really, I can feel a difference when I do it. Do you meditate? I try. TM interests me because it, it seems like something that works for people, but I just like, yeah. I invariably hit a wall. If you can get a teacher, I think it's, I think it's hard to meditate without instruction. You know, it's like a, it's like driving a stick shift or something. Like you got to have something to kind of initiate you into it. It's been really good for me. I, I think I learned in 2004 and it's been like a pretty steady part of my life. Does it play a role in your songwriting? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, in as much as the unconscious plays a role in the songwriting, because sometimes you'll look back, I'll look back at things I wrote or things that come out and you're, and you're like, where'd that come from? You know, or, or even just um, paying attention to my dreams can often be fertile, just like a weird startling image or a phrase. Sometimes you have these weird things that come through and, and if you can remember to write them down, those can be useful. But I feel like meditation is a good way to quiet the kind of surface uh, storm and and get down to the lower depths. You know, David Lynch really has written quite wonderfully about all that. I know that you, especially after doing How I Met Your Mother, you were dealing with some issues of depression. Was it was it was that when you really turned to a lot of the stuff? No, I. Yeah, I don't know that I ever had any kind of like clinically diagnosable depression, and it wasn't a- after How I Met Your Mother I've been great. <laughs> it was more that it was the early years of how I met your mother were really battling some melancholy. And um, that's where, you know, that's when ayahuasca came into my life. And, and it just, I think what happened to me was 
I got what I wanted or what I thought I wanted from a, a cultural egoic perspective. And I found myself more unhappy than I was before. And that's, that's a not uncommon thing, you know, like you achieved a certain goal that you had set out to achieve. It's that thing of more, more tears are shed over answered prayers than unanswered prayers. Right. And then I thought, well, if a hit TV show doesn't make me happy, where is happy? Like what will make me happy? So it just drove me on a deeper, I'm grateful for it because it really drove me on a deeper search for meaning. And, uh, and I guess what I landed on was, I, I like to be inspired. I like to inspire people and I like to make things like I keep coming back to, you know, even though I'm, I'm, I'm like from Columbus, Ohio, and I'm the son of a, a lawyer and a teacher. And it, and it took me a long time to really say like, no, 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 you're an artist. Like you're a storyteller. Like you're a person who makes things, whether it's songs or movies or plays. Um, and, and I found that my search, this kind of, deeper, you know, spiritual search didn't take me away from all those things. It just deepened my commitment to them and changed why I'm doing them. So like I was no longer doing them for fame or glory or profit, even though those things are a great byproduct of them Uh, when they come and when they don't, that, that also is fine too. But I just, I just, I really found that like my best days are when I'm making something and it's flowing and it's just fun. You know, it's when I feel most alive and it's when I feel like I'm actually doing what I'm here to do. Yeah. I mean, you don't do it just for external validation, but like external validation sure helps. Yeah. But it's ultimately not enough fuel, right? Like you, you do the thing and, and you know, you might have like the opening night party or whatever, or the premiere and those are, that's all fun. And then the next day you're really depleted (laughs) and you feel like, there, you know, it is a bit like a drug that you have to pay for on the other end. The, 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 the thing is, though, that it must be said is especially in, you know, making art in America, it really helps to have some success because you want people to pay attention and you don't want to be falling into the wind. And that's not to say that if relatively few people pay, pay attention, that it's it's not worthwhile. It certainly is. But I, I feel like I want to keep making things. So you do have to, you, you, you know, you want, you want some evidence that what you're making is getting through. 